This is the second podcast uh, concept lecture for topic two, where we're going to be looking at confidentiality, uh, information barriers particularly, and also looking at privilege and the ethical obligations that arise with a lawyer's obligation to assert their client's claim for privilege. The Let's look at confidentiality. The duty that we have in relation to confidentiality is a very high one, and that duty to treat the client's information as confidential is integral to the good operation of the adversarial system and the integrity of the profession. In history, clients would represent themselves, but as the legal profession began to emerge with the complexity of law, legal advocates started appearing on behalf of their clients in courts and negotiations. To facilitate justice and to ensure proper service of the client, the duty around keeping all communications between the client and their legal advisor confidential developed in the common law, mainly under the rules of privilege, uh, common law privilege rules. But that duty of confidentiality is a very clear and implied term of the contractual retainer. It's an equitable duty also, and it's enforceable both at common law and also in a disciplinary sense. The duty of confidentiality, as I said in the last podcast, uh, outlasts the duration of the retainer and can even survive beyond the lifespan of the client. On death of the client, indeed, confidentiality and the right to waive confidentiality passes to the legal representative of the deceased client, the estate. And the estate may enforce the right to keep that information confidential. And in this regard, have a look at the case of Turner and Tibbetts of 2000, uh, sorry, 2020. So as representatives of our clients, lawyers are required to keep all information that a client tells a lawyer in confidence. Now that's whether or not you think that information's confidential, you must not repeat or publicise any of it. This might even include the very fact that the client has consulted you. Now, in some instances, particularly in family law disputes, uh, the fact that the client's seeking legal advice will be a highly sensitive matter, and so too in many corporate and commercial matters as well. So you wouldn't disclose that you've even been consulted um, or make that known. All information exchanged in the course of the retainer is not to be disclosed to anybody except for co-workers in the same firm or legal practice. Um, and again, you should note that any disclosures in that regard are covered by the duties and obligations under the Australian Solicitor's Conduct Rules of Rule 9.1.1 and 1.2 um, because it's imputed knowledge of the firm and the whole firm owes the duty of confidentiality, not just the solicitor who is executing the work. You can also bring into the loop of confidential information counsel, namely a barrister, who is briefed and acting for the client. The duty to keep client information confidential is a duty that is actionable by the client if it's breached, and you can action it in three domains. Firstly, in equity for breach of equitable duties. Uh, secondly, um, in contract, you can uh, sue for breach of contract if the confidential information gets out. And thirdly, under the professional conduct rules, namely Rule, no, rule 9. Uh, for the barristers, Bar Rules 114 and 115 cover the obligations of confidentiality. Now, the reason behind the requirement that client information is kept confidential is obvious. Clients need to be able to disclose all matters to their lawyers um, so that they can receive full and frank legal advice. Full disclosure by clients enables their lawyers to advise properly and to ensure compliance and proper functioning of the adversarial system.
If lawyers were not required to treat client information as confidential, then we could certainly see that it would undermine the whole effectiveness and trust of the profession. And indeed, we would be put in the inenviable position of being told half-truths and potentially lies by clients if we were able to be compelled to divulge what the client had told us. Um, we can see a very um, high watermark example of how uh, high this standard of confidentiality is when we again return to the case of Lawyer X with Nicola Gobbo and the High Court's uh, condemnation in the strongest possible terms of her failure to keep confidential the information that Tony Mockbell, a very well-known criminal, had given her at the time by being a police informant whilst she was also acting for Mr Mockbell. Regardless of her uh, internal value system and her feelings in relation to having to act for this client, his right to confidentiality is paramount. Indeed, so was every other criminal who she acted for and informed on. And as a consequence of her breach of confidentiality to the client, criminal convictions have actually been overturned. A lot is at stake. And the implications of failure to keep information confidential can be seen very starkly in this high-profile example. Uh, now, there are many academics who will argue that confidentiality is a nonsense and only operates to protect the interests of the legal profession itself. I disagree, but you should ponder this and crit critically evaluate, you know, what is the utility of clients being able to tell you everything? Um, is that a benefit or is it a burden? And you should ponder this as you read further and consider the scope and obligation of that duty. When considering the duty of confidentiality, I think it's prudent to ask four questions. Number one, what is the duty? Number two, who owes it? Number three, to whom is it owed? And number four, for how long do we owe it? So number one, who owes the duty? Well, obviously, the legal practitioner, the lawyer, i.e. the solicitor and the barrister who have been retained on behalf of the client. Due also to the doctrine of imputed knowledge to the firm or legal practice, so what one lawyer knows is imputed to be the knowledge of all the lawyers in the practice, even if it's not, it is imputed, then all lawyers know the information and are required to treat it as confidential. So it's no excuse to say, oh, well, my colleague so-and-so is acting for this famous person because if your colleague is in the same legal practice, that is a matter that is confidential and you are bound by the same rules of confidentiality that your, that your colleague who is executing the retainer are bound by. Uh, all of those who are employed under a contract of service for the firm, so law clerks, uh, part-time, full-time, paralegals, legal assistants, secretaries, etc., are all bound by the duty of confidentiality and the buck stops with the principle of the law firm where there's a breach by any of those people. Confidentiality can also extend and be owed by third parties who become involved in legal proceedings as a consequence of the matter being litigated or uh, requiring advice. So, for example, any experts um, who are briefed in connection with the client's matter, such as doctors, barristers, engineers, uh, accountants, etc., uh, will also be bound by this duty and obligation to keep matters confidential, obviously not bound by the solicitor's conduct rules, which specifically apply to lawyers, but certainly in equity and contract, they too have an implied uh, obligation to keep information confidential. So then the question is, well, to whom is the duty owed? Well, obviously the client, but 
uh, client is not actually defined uh, very easily. Sometimes when we're acting for a corporation, for example, we have to identify who exactly the client may be. Is it the directors or is it the whole company? Essentially, the client is any person who seeks legal services from a lawyer. Now, the Australian Solicitor's Conduct Rules Glossary defines client as person for whom the solicitor is engaged to provide legal services for a matter. Because uh, government departments and corporations are considered legal persons, they therefore will come under the duty to whom we owe confidentiality. Now, sometimes the duty of confidentiality will be owed to the client's legal representatives, such as their estate, because the client is no longer alive. But the duty of confidentiality is one that is serious and outlasts the retainer. And that leads to our next question. How long do you owe the duty for? As I've said previously, it outlasts the retainer and unlike the duty of loyalty, you owe it beyond death. Confidentiality passes to the legal representative of the client who may waive or agree for confidentiality to no longer be maintained, or if the information comes into the public domain and is well known, then it has lost its confidential nature and is no longer required to be kept confidential by you. Where confidentiality gets tricky and is contested is when a lawyer acts for one party in proceedings and then subsequently accepts instructions from an opposing or related party in subsequent proceedings. Uh, that party may benefit from the lawyer's prior knowledge of confidential information, the fact that they know how a client works or operates or particular knowledge or industry secrets that the client has. And for this reason, the terms on which a matter are accepted are important and complex conflict avoidance checks and making sure there is no conflicts are vital in risk management of any legal practice. And we'll talk about conflicts next week. However, a terrific example really of where um, confidential information can give rise to a conflict and create all sorts of headaches for a legal practitioner was where um, high profile barrister uh, Sue Chrysanthu, senior counsel, who is a defamation specialist, was acting on behalf of former Attorney General Christian Porter in relation to uh, defamation proceedings against the ABC. Uh, Ms. Chrysanthu was um, restrained on court order from continuing to act for Mr. Porter because it was considered she had a conflict of interest because she was in receipt of confidential information from a former client, a Ms. Joe Dyer, who apparently had been um, a close friend of a deceased person who had made an allegation of rape against the former Attorney General, and that was the subject of which he was then suing in relation to defamation proceedings. The confidential information therefore led to a conflict and Ms Chrysanthu was ordered by the court to cease acting. Uh, some people have speculated that that was what brought those defamation proceedings to an end, having lost his most experienced senior counsel. So, as I said before, even disclosing sometimes that you're acting for a particular person may be a breach of confidentiality. And you really need to take note of this because your use of social media, both in your public life and your private life, as to what you're doing and what you're up to at work, needs to be very carefully considered and kept very confidential. So the question then arises, well, are there any instances where a lawyer may or be required to disclose confidential information? 
And the answer to this is contained in the common law and in equity, and has also been expanded and uh, codified, I suppose, in Rule 9.2 of the Australian Solicitor's Conduct Rules, where there are some very well-known exceptions to the rule of absolute confidentiality. The gist of this rule is that lawyers may disclose confidential information of clients if, number one, the client authorises expressly that the disclosure is allowed, Number two, uh, that the solicitor is compelled by law to disclose confidential information. So, for example, by a court order or by legislation. Uh, thinking about um, Austrac legislation, for example, where you're required to actually disclose uh, to Austrac deposits over $10,000 would be a good example. Uh, thirdly, where disclosure in a confidential setting is made by the solicitor where advice is sought. So for example, where you're briefing counsel or alternatively, you've got a bit of an ethical dilemma and you've approached the Law Society Ethics Committee or Ethics Advisor to get ethical advice. This would be a confidential setting where you're seeking advice and is not considered a breach of your confidentiality obligations. Uh, rule 9.2.4, where disclosures made to avoid the probable commission of a serious criminal offence, namely an indictable offence. So if a client discloses confidential information to you that they intend to commit a serious offence, then you have um, an out in the rules to disclose that information to the relevant authorities, namely the police. Uh, 9.2.5, where the disclosure is made to avoid imminent serious physical harm to the client or to another person. So, for example, the client confides in you that they're going to kill themselves. Um, 9.2.5 would be the case where you are allowed to disclose that information to somebody else because you're avoiding imminent serious physical harm to the client. Or, heaven forbid, the client tells you they're going to create serious physical harm to another person and you have to inform the police. 9.2.6, where information is disclosed to your insurer the law practice or associated entity. Uh, this is where you have to have professional indemnity insurance and you have to disclose confidential information about some of the nature of the work you're doing or the clients that you are representing. So do have a good read through 9.2, the exceptions to the rules of confidentiality. Really important to understand when you can and cannot disclose confidential information. Frequently, though, if the confidential information doesn't fall into any of those exclusion categories, then you're required to keep it confidential. And if it becomes impossible, you may simply have to cease acting for the client. In legal practice, solicitors will often cover themselves with relation to the disclosure of confidential information by having clients sign what we call authorities to release information. Authorities will be used, for example, when you're obtaining reports from experts or doctors, whereby the client authorises you in writing to disclose confidential information to that expert or to that doctor in order to obtain the report. Now, when a client um, becomes in dispute with their lawyer, and perhaps they've lodged a complaint with the Legal Services Commissioner, this is when confidentiality ceases to exist. Um, and that's with respect to the information that's pertinent to the dispute between the lawyer and the client. Section 321 of the Legal Profession Uniform Law provides that both legal privilege and confidentiality are waived by the client in the making of a complaint against the legal practitioner. Now, where confidentiality will uh, often become really contentious 
is with the acceptance of work subsequently or formally from clients in large law practices or areas where you're highly specialised. Because of the doctrine of imputed knowledge that what one solicitor in a legal practice knows, all solicitors know, it operates as a rebuttable presumption, essentially, that you have to prove not everybody in the firm knows it, and you have to show that you have quarantined or kept knowledge to a certain individual if you want to take on further work. What imputed knowledge is, is the idea that confidential information held by any one lawyer on a client will be imputed to be known by all lawyers, sorry, all lawyers and responsible um, people within the firm. Now, because large firms often do the bulk of work in certain sectors and certain areas, it's practically impossible for them to take instructions in new matters sometimes because of a potential of conflict of interest and breach of confidentiality with respect to former clients that they've acted for. So, for example, one corporate client might be your client on the buy side of a deal one week, but next week is going to be the opposing party in a sales side of a different deal next week. And you've got inside information about the operation of that client, their assets um, and their ability to uh, pay a certain price, for example. How do law firms handle this? Well, the answer is with very sophisticated conflict checking and information barriers. Information barriers formerly were quite inappropriately called Chinese walls, but they're now called information barriers and you'll find these at Rule 10.2 of the Australian Solicitor's Conduct Rules. This rule provides that a solicitor must not act where there is a conflict in maintaining confidentiality between a former client and a current client unless informed consent of the former client is obtained or an effective information barrier has been erected. Now, information barriers are procedural uh, steps that can be ethically used to quarantine and manage potential conflicts due to a sharing of confidential information between client matters. Information barriers require the law practice to adopt stringent measures that prevent the sharing of confidential information, even accidental sharing, between client matters and between particular staff members. And this is done through appointing a compliance officer and requiring different lawyers and staff to work on specific matters and preventing any communication or information between staff, the rest of the staff working on other matters so that the two are kept very separate. All staff are required to give undertakings, not to share any information, and there needs to be strict data control procedures in place that are demonstrable to a court. Now, information barriers also require um, effective systems like data management, and they require training of relevant staff. So it's not easy to erect an information barrier. And large firms are very good at doing this and there are guidelines in most jurisdictions, law societies for how these should be done and managed. And those guidelines are very extensive. Do have a look at the Law Society of New South Wales guidelines just to give you an idea. But the implications are that an information barrier cannot always be adopted. So when you have a situation where there's an implied duty to supervise, for example, junior members of staff, uh, and yet you're trying to maintain an information barrier against those staff, then obviously you can't have an information barrier and thus you cannot accept the instructions because you have a conflict. Um, 
sometimes firms are too small simply or don't have the data management systems or the appropriate protocols and procedures in place to effectively implement an information barrier. So it will depend on the nature of the matter, the nature of the law practice and the systems that they can put in place. Now, information barriers do not remove fiduciary responsibilities of loyalty or the requirements of client confidentiality that the law practice owes to each client. And furthermore, the, how effective the information barrier is can be challenged in court by a former or existing client. Now, when this happens, the court will, on a case-by-case basis, consider the effectiveness of the information barrier. Even the slightest breach or risk of breach will result in solicitors being disqualified by the court from acting and the information barrier failing. And this was seen in the matter of Asia-Pacific Telecommunications and Optus Networks Proprietary Limited, where the signing of a document uh, by a solicitor who was acting in one matter was required by the partner of the same firm who had previously acted against that client in another matter. Now, although the document had nothing to do with the client matters, it was considered a breach of the information barrier. Um, So the court restrained the law practice from acting. It's good to have a look at the cases in this area and where I've discussed this in the text. Um, As well as the inherent jurisdiction of the court to supervise and discipline its own officers, um, in this regard, see Kalinikos and Hunt, the courts have recognised that there are a number of legal bases for restraining lawyers from acting in matters because of the potential of a conflict caused by the possession of communications that are confidential. The test of whether a court will intervene and disqualify or order a practitioner to cease acting um, was set down in the case of Prince Geoffrey Bolkier and KPMG, and that's the principal area of law that's been followed by Australian courts. The test uh, noted by Lord Millett was that the court should intervene unless it is satisfied that there is no real risk of disclosure. It goes without saying that the risk must be a real one and not merely fanciful and theoretical, but it need not be substantial. When a barrier has been implemented, the onus of proof lies on the lawyer to prove that the imputed knowledge of the firm is overcome by an effective information barrier. As I said before, imputed knowledge is a rebuttable presumption. See Unioil International and Deloitte Touche Tomatsu. The rebuttable presumption requires that the law practice who is maintaining the information barrier prove that the imputed knowledge is contained and that their system is effective and exists in preventing tainted lawyers from sharing confidential information between conflicting client matters. In some instances, as I said, an information barrier is impossible. And in those situations, the instructions to represent the new client should be refused in order to preserve the confidentiality of the prior and existing clients. Let's now talk about legal professional privilege. Legal professional privilege is an important area to understand and it's also fraught with ethical considerations that a lawyer needs to be cognizant of. Now, you'll have covered what privilege is, no doubt, in evidence law and criminal procedure and probably civil procedure. So my focus is not to rehash the details of what privilege is, uh, but rather to focus in on how this can bring out some ethical issues and permutations for lawyers in how they behave. Legal professional privilege, or more correctly, client legal privilege, exists in common law, but it's also now enshrined in statute at section 118 and 119 of the Evidence Act, both of New South Wales and the Commonwealth. 
legal professional privilege belongs to the client, remember, not to the lawyer. Privilege covers all confidential communications that are brought into existence for the purpose, the dominant purpose of obtaining legal advice or for the dominant purpose of in contemplation of actual or anticipated uh, legal proceedings. So two types of privilege um, are called advice privilege and litigation privilege respectively. This distinction reflects the position at common law and sections 118, which is advice privilege, and section 119, which is litigation privilege in the Evidence Act. Now, um, legal profession privilege also applies not only to the adducing of evidence at trial, but to interlocutory matters where there are disclosure requirements such as pretrial discovery, interrogatories, notices to produce, etc. See section 131, capital A of the Uniform Evidence Law. Because privilege belongs to the client and only the client, then they are the one who can waive the privilege. And yet, although the privilege belongs to the client, it is the lawyer who asserts uh, privilege on behalf of the client because, let's face it, it's a really complicated area as to whether or not something is privileged. And usually the lawyer does this as the client's agent and legal representative in the process of discovery when records are subpoenaed, search warrants are executed, or alternatively an Anton Pillar is, order is made. Now this raises um, two important obligations simultaneously for a lawyer in privilege. The first one is to uh, make sure they properly assert and protect the client's right to privilege and not miss that opportunity. Um, secondly, they have a duty to the court to only claim privilege that's legally valid and justifiable over material that is, on a proper view of the law and an arguable view of the facts, privileged. So to assert privilege, claims um, that are not justified, for example, are an abusive process and a breach of your duty to the court. So balancing the interests of the client and protecting their right in privilege must always be done with that competing and paramount obligation of the duty to the court. It's important to distinguish between um, the duty of confidentiality and privilege. Confidentiality has its roots in the contractual nature of the relationship between lawyer and client, whereas privilege is a substantial rule of common law that's expanded in the Evidence Acts. So the context of confidentiality um, is, is equitable essentially and contractual and comes in the conduct rules, whereas legal privilege remains separate and is a substantive legal right of the clients. As we know, privilege attaches to all communications between a lawyer and the client, um, and indeed it even can go to third party reports and documents that are brought about for the purposes of dominantly uh, anticipated proceedings or obtaining advice. Um, Again, it's really important to be clear on the difference between the two and do have a look at the text in this regard. Um, it's important to note too that uh, priv privilege can be abrogated or ousted by statute as well and that's where a lawyer's professional responsibility can come into play where you need to know that uh, a client's right to privilege is actually abrogated by statute and there's an obligation to disclose confidential and privileged information. Remembering that uh, all information between lawyer and client will be confidential, but not all information between lawyer and client 
will be privileged because of the reason that it's not necessarily brought into existence for the dominant purpose of obtaining legal advice or alternatively the dominant purpose of anticipated or actual litigation. Uh, privilege can be extended to third parties outside of the lawyer where that third party is consulted with respect to advice that's needed for a client matter. Um, for example, when a client writes to a doctor requesting a report on their injured client, that report will be privileged if the dominant purpose of obtaining the report was to seek legal advice or to be used as evidence in contemplated proceedings. So too, expert reports and barristers' opinions. Um, the important purpose or matter to concern yourself with is what the purpose for which the documentation was brought into existence and to be clear on your obligations as a professional of producing material and producing it in accordance with the relevant court procedural rules that apply at the time so that the client's claim for privilege is properly protected and if necessary adjudicated by the court if it's contested by the other side. There are several instances I've given you in the text where privilege can be inadvertently waived and waived by practitioners. So for example, accidentally attaching uh, privilege material as an annexure in an email or a document uh, as to whether or not you've waived privilege in that context, whether you refer to it in a pleading or a document inadvertently. And great care in professional conduct has to be made to ensure that you continue to protect the client's right to privilege and that you have their very clear and fully informed instructions to waive their right to privilege if indeed they're happy to do so. So privilege can be lost in four ways. Firstly, it can be waived uh, by either the client or by you. It can be, uh, it can lose its privilege because it's illegal or there was an improper purpose for which it was brought about. Or it can be abrogated by statute, as I mentioned before, or the defendant used it in a criminal context. So as I've mentioned, uh, in the case of waiver, waiver is either express or implied. It can be done by both you as their representative or by the party themselves in their conduct in the proceedings. Um, a party may intentionally inadvertently waive their right to claim privilege over communications. And as I said before, waiver, express waiver particularly, should only be done on informed client instructions because it is the client that owns that privilege. And if you waive privilege or give access to privileged information, then the client technically can sue you for negligence or for breach of confidentiality. Uh, other ways that waiver can be found are detailed within your text. Do have a look at the cases of Attorney General and Maurice and Mann and Carnell in relation to implied and inadvertent waivers. Um, as I mentioned before, in relation to a basis where privilege is abrogated by statute, you might like to look at um, Daniels Corporation and the ACCC, which determined that in order for privilege to be abrogated by statute, the legislative instrument must be clear and unequivocal in its intent to uh, limit or to abrogate the privilege that is being claimed. Finally, as I mentioned, uh, in the context of criminal matters, sometimes privilege will also be contested under Section 123 of the Evidence Act, which abrogates privilege in criminal proceedings and allows a criminal defendant to adduce expert evidence, sorry, adduce evidence where um, 
except where the evidence relates to confidential communications between an associated defendant and the lawyer acting for that defendant. Um, again, these are very particular and highly specialised areas. But what is important is to understand how the two different types of privilege, so advice privilege and litigation privilege, the dominant purpose test for that, and then to understand very clearly the legal rules that you have to operate within in terms of protecting your client's claim of privilege and asserting it, ensuring that claim is legally valid in terms of not an abusive process, that it properly is privileged that you're claiming, and making sure that you assert that claim as an agent and representative of the client. Thanks for listening and we'll look forward to looking at more client obligations in our next podcast.